Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for the charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. I want to focus in on that statement that Pilate made more of a profound statement than Pilate realized when he said, with Jesus standing there dressed in the robe and the crown of thorns, here is the man. As I read that this week, my mind just began to race with that thought. Jesus really is the man. Not a man, he is the man. Jesus did what no other man could accomplish. I'm going to give you four things that Jesus did related to that statement, thinking about that statement. Four of humanity's greatest problems that Jesus solved. Here's one problem that we have. We have a God that we cannot see. We have a God that we cannot see. We have a sense in life that there is more to life than what we can see. We try the things that life offers, the tangible things, looking for fulfillment and they leave us empty and unsatisfied. Why is that? Well, it's because we were created by God, for God, with the capacity to have a relationship with Him. But we can't see Him. How can we know Him? He seems so distant and far off. This creator that controls the vastness of the universe as we sit here on this little spinning rock called earth. What are we to do? We have a God we cannot see. Well, because of Jesus, I submit to you tonight, we have a God we can see now. Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians 1.19. In Jesus, 
All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What Paul is telling us right there is that Jesus is God. Not a really close picture of God. No, that he is actually perfectly, completely God in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. So I say with Pilate, here is the man. Jesus, the God-man. Second great problem with humanity, and that is that we have a debt that we cannot pay. That debt is sin. And sin brings death. Physical death and spiritual death, which the Bible defines as separation from God. And there's no amount of good works that we can do that will offset the sin that we have committed. And that sin puts us in an indebtedness to a holy God that we can never hope to pay. Puts us under His condemnation and His wrath. But Jesus, Jesus came to do something about the debt that we couldn't pay. Colossians 2.14 says this, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's what that means. That means that Jesus' death is the payment that pays the debt for us that we could not pay. So I say with Pilate, here is the man, Jesus, the great benefactor. Thirdly, we have a standard we cannot meet. That's our third great problem. And what is the standard? Well, the standard is perfect righteousness. You see, heaven is a perfect place. And in order to get into heaven, we need to be perfect. God is perfect. Heaven is perfect. For us to be there and live in eternal perfection with Him, we need to be perfect. The problem is that we're not, and if God let something imperfect into heaven, what would heaven become? It would become imperfect. Jesus solved the problem. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear the truth of that statement? It is that Jesus lived this perfect life and when we place our faith and trust in Him, what happens is that He gives us His perfect righteousness. We become perfect. We become fitted for heaven. So I say with Pilate, Here is the man, Jesus, the giver of righteousness. Fourth problem that we cannot solve, we have an enemy that we cannot defeat. 
You see, all the time around us, there is testimony that we live in a world controlled by the enemy. Evil is rampant and pervasive. And we cannot beat him. But the truth that we're celebrating here tonight is that Jesus has beat him. 1 John 3, 8 says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You see, by paying our debt that we couldn't pay and by giving us a righteousness that we couldn't live up to, giving it to us, what has happened for those who put their faith in Christ is that the work of the enemy against them has been defeated. His work has been destroyed. And so I say to you, as Pilate said, here is the man, Jesus, the conqueror of evil. We're going to read another segment of verses now from the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And a few times during this reading, there's going to be statements made by the mob, by the crowd, actually shouts from the mob and the crowd. And we're going to put those phrases up on the screen. And we want you, as you experience the first Good Friday, we want you to be the mob, you to be the crowd, you to shout out what you, the words that you see uh, on the screen. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, And Pilate asked Jesus, Where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. They answered, What shall I then do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered. Why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, It's a little difficult to cry out, crucify him, isn't it? But ultimately, it was our sin that put him there. That's why he had to die. What I want to highlight for you in this segment of the reading is related to 
a conversation that Jesus had there or a statement that Jesus made to Pilate. You see, as that trial before the Roman governor, Pilate progressed, it says that Pilate was amazed at Jesus. And what amazed him was not something Jesus said. It was his silence. Jesus stood there calm, composed, and completely silent as the accusation of the Jewish religious leaders were brought against him and Pilate wanted him to defend himself. And at one point in exasperation, Pilate said, don't you realize that I have the power either to give you life or take it? And then comes the profound reply of Jesus. Listen to this statement. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. What Jesus is communicating there is that his death the sentence that he knew Pilate was about to hand out, that that sentence, that conviction and condemnation was actually the plan of his father. Pilate, what you do is under the oversight, the plan of the Father of heaven. In other words, my death is the Father's plan. Now, I want to show you that that shocking reality is actually true. That the perfect Father of heaven had a very determined plan to take his perfect Holy Son to the cross. And I want to do that by taking a few steps back and looking at some scenes in the life of Jesus. Here's the first step back. Let's step back a few months from that trial before Pilate. Let's step back a few months and listen to what Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, said Jesus taught them. Matthew 16, 21. Matthew wrote, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And Matthew records that when Jesus said that, Peter did not like it. Boisterous Peter, quick to speak, slow to think. Peter said, in rebuking Jesus, never will that happen, Jesus. And then comes Jesus' reply. Listen to the evidence here of the plan of the Father. Matthew 16, 21, Peter, Jesus said, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
In other words, Peter, if you are looking at this with the mind of God, with the plan of God, you would not be saying to me, I must not be crucified. You would say, that's exactly what has to happen. Why? Because it's the plan of God. Take another step back. Step back three years in the life of Jesus. Go to a Riverside, the Jordan. John's there. As well as many, many people that were flocking to John to be baptized. And John, there at the Jordan, looks into the crowd and he sees Jesus. And he shouts out there at the Jordan River for all to hear, Look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. The Lamb that God is going to provide. Jesus, the sacrifice that the Father is giving. It's the Father's plan to sacrifice the Son. Step back about 28, 29 years. Jesus is two years old here. Wise men from the east traveling by camel cover a good portion of a continent making their way to the home of a poor Jewish carpenter and his wife named Mary and their toddler named Jesus. They come with gifts to present to the toddler. So here's a question. What do you buy a knee-high little boy 2,000 years ago in Palestine? I mean, what would be just the perfect gift for a little toddler that would just light him up, right? Well, they brought gold. Pretty good gift for mom and dad. Expensive to raise kids, right? They brought gold because they knew Jesus was a king. They also brought frankincense. Maybe equivalent to today's potpourri. That was the tool of a priest to burn incense at the temple. Jesus would become the high priest of humanity. And then they brought myrrh. Can you just imagine the delight of a little toddler when the big clay pot full of myrrh probably weighing more than his entire body weight was given to him. Oh, and what was myrrh for? Myrrh was to prepare a dead person for burial. Why? Why would men travel across the continent 
over mountains and across a wilderness, spending possibly months, maybe a few years on the journey so that they could go to see a toddler they didn't know that was the child of a family they had no connection with to bring him a jar of death oil. Why? Well, maybe here's a question that answers it. Who or what led them to do that? Well, the story tells us that the wise men followed the what? What did they follow? They followed the star. Who is it that flung the stars into place? Who calls them out by night, one by one by name? Who sets them on their courses in the heavens? Who does that? God does that. The Creator does that. And the orbit of this star was highly unusual. This is a star that appeared at the time of the birth of Jesus and that star served as their guide on their long journey day after day week after week, month after month, so precisely did it lead them that it brought them right to the door of a Jewish family with a little toddler named Jesus. Wow. And what they did is they bowed before this toddler. And at the little feet they worshipped and they gave him a jar of death oil. You see, it was the Father of Heaven that led the star, that led the men so that they laid the jar of death oil at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because God was painting a picture that he sent his son to die. That's why. He sent his son to die. That was the plan. That was the predetermined and orchestrated and carried out and accomplished work of the Father to get that done. Now what I could do, we don't have time, but I could keep taking steps back and walk you all the way through the Old Testament from the end back to the beginning and I could show you story after story that would show you that it was the plan of the Father of Heaven to take the Son from Heaven now on earth to the cross. But I'll give you one more. The step back that we're going to take is thousands of years and the scene is a garden, a beautiful garden in full bloom. The Garden of Eden. The genesis of humanity. And there at that scene stands the first man and the first woman. And their heads are hung in shame and their lips are dripping with the juice of the forbidden fruit 
And with them is the serpent, is Satan, the one that had tempted them successfully to rebel against God. And God is judging Satan. And what he says to Satan in Genesis chapter 3 is he says, one day, one day, a seed from this woman, a child is going to come one day. And what that child is going to do is he's going to crush your head. In other words, he's going to conquer you. He's going to defeat you and what you do. And that child did come. And his name was Jesus. And he did defeat the enemy. Let's read another segment of the story. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, nailing him to the cross along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The soldiers, as we just heard, in mockery of Jesus, they said to him, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Just think with me for a minute about Jesus and about what Jesus had done. Folks, he is the one that opened eyes that were blind. He is the one that had opened ears to hear that could not hear. He is the one that had took legs that were crippled and couldn't move and gave them life and strength and vitality. If Jesus would have wanted to come off the cross, he could have done that. Jesus was the one that had walked on the water. He is the one that in the midst of a raging storm looked into the storm and with a simple command, be still, 
had brought a perfect calm. If he would have wanted to come down, he could have come down. Jesus is the one who had defeated the finality of the tomb as he stood outside at the gravesite of Lazarus and he called across the threshold of death and he said, Lazarus, come out. And a four-day-long dead man, wrapped and mummified, shuffled out of the tomb. Listen, if Jesus wanted to, he could have leapt off of the cross and shocked the soldiers mocking him there. But that's not why he came. He didn't come to save himself. He didn't need saving. Here is why he came. He told us, Luke 19.10, he said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. You see, he could have come down from the cross and saved himself, but instead he chose the far harder, greater path. He stayed on the cross so he could save us so he could save you. That's why he was there. And so he listened to the mocking, but he remained in love to save. One more segment of the story. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour... Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. After Jesus had received the sour wine, he uttered a loud cry, which means it is finished, and breathed his last. To tell us time! That final cry of Jesus on the cross, the writer told us there that it meant it is finished. That's kind of a strange cry, seemingly for the situation. 
a man hanging in agony in the throes of death. You see, it doesn't sound like the agonizing wail of defeat. That doesn't fit. What it sounds like is a shout of victory. I mean, the meaning of the phrase is not a defeated statement. So let's think about that for a minute. It's a profound cry, a profound statement. (coughs) You see, what we know, what we clearly know from historical records, from archaeological findings, is we know the etymology of that word. We know how it was used in the day of Jesus. And I want to tell you that right now. (coughs) First of all, it was a word used by painters. When a great artist had finished, finished a painting and he'd step back and look at the painting, he might say, looking at his completed work, to telestai, meaning it is finished, it stands finished, and it will always be finished. That's how the word was used. It was also a word that was used by merchants. A merchant selling his wares and you bought one of his items, he would write you a receipt and on that receipt he would write to telestai. Meaning that the debt has been paid in full. It was also a word that was used by Jewish priests in this situation. Jews would travel to Jerusalem. They would come so that they could go to the temple where they could bring sacrifices with them that they could offer to God in recognition that they had sinned against God. And so they would bring these sacrifices to God because of their sin. And they couldn't just be any sacrifice. They had to meet a requirement. They had to be without blemish. And so what the priest at the temple would do is he would examine the sacrificial animal. He would make sure that that animal was without blemish. And if after examining it, he found it to be in fact without blemish, he would say that it was tetelestai, meaning this sacrifice is acceptable. And then finally, it was a word that was used by servants. A master had a servant, and he would give that servant some work to do, and when the servant had finished, he would come back to the master, and he would say to the master, to telestai, meaning, the work that you gave me to do, I have fully completed. Now, watch this. Watch this. Do you remember the four problems that humanity has that we cannot solve? That we talked about after the first reading? Think about the statement of Jesus 
and how the word was used in his day that perfectly answers those four problems. Remember, we have a God we cannot see. And what Jesus did is that he came as the perfect life to demonstrate, to show who God was, to, with by his life, painted a perfect picture of God. And when he finished that painting, with his final brushstroke on the cross, he threw his head back, and in victory, he shouted to Telestai, meaning, the painting is finished. It stands finished. And it will always be finished. The problem that we have a debt we cannot pay on the cross, Jesus paid the debt of sin. And in his final moment, with his final breath, he shouted out in victory to Telestai, meaning the debt has been paid in full. And we have a standard we cannot meet. But what Jesus did is he lived a perfect life. And as he came to the final moment of his perfect, righteous life, he threw his head back in, in victory. He shouted to Telestai, meaning the sacrifice that has been given is fully accepted it is without blemish and then finally we have an enemy that we cannot beat an enemy that keeps us in bondage to sin and that sin that condemns us and puts us under the wrath of God. Yet with the final breath of Jesus, the servant of God, who had been sent to do a task, threw his head back and he shouted out to his Father in heaven, to tell us die, I have fully completed the work you sent me to do. And in fact, he did. He showed us the God we couldn't see, paid the debt we couldn't pay, met for us the standard we couldn't meet. And he defeated the enemy we couldn't beat. That's why he shouted to Telestai. It was a shout of victory. Ultimate, complete, forever victory. Now that we have processed the story, the reading, and the explanation. We have some other experiential things for you to do that Ash mentioned earlier. On each side, there are three stations. 
duplicated. These three, the same as these. And there are items there meant to help you experience that first Good Friday. There's a crown of thorns and a whip and a hammer and spikes. There's a cross. There are some elements there around the tomb like the spices that anoint a dead body. What we want you to do is we want you to go to those stations. We want you to touch, feel. We want you to read the poster there that helps explain the significance of those items so that you can experience with your senses that night. And then on either side of me, there's four different stations for communion and four more, two on each side in the back. Communion is elements meant to help you experience the reality of the death of Jesus, His broken body and His spilled blood, that price that pays your debt and gives you righteousness if you will put your faith in Jesus. So communion is for those who have accepted Jesus or for you tonight if for the first time hearing the story you are putting your faith in Christ and Christ alone. So what we want you to do is we want you to go to the stations, take communion, continue to experience that Black Friday that is now Good Friday because of what Jesus has done.